Well, it's class time, everybody. Class time, one and all. Let me lead us in prayer. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and praise you that we have a chance to consider your word, that we have a chance to learn. Uh, God, it's nice to hear the, the water running. Somebody has learned about you. Somebody's making a decision today about you and giving themselves completely to you. And we just praise you for Olivia and her life and pray you'd bless her as she starts this new life in you. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen. So what I want to do this morning is I want to start with uh, this subject of identifying marks of churches. And I don't know if you're aware of this. If, you have, if you've spent any time in Churches of Christ, in the past, one of the things that we used to talk about all the time were the identifying marks of the church. And there were books that were written on this subject. People would you know, write a book on the Church of Christ, and maybe the subtitle would be something like The Identifying Marks of the Church. And we pretty much knew what those were. And we'll get to that at the end. But what I want us to do first, before we get to the end of this slide, I want us to start with what we would see as identifying marks of some of these groups of believers. Because all of these groups can be identified by some fairly specific things, actually. So when we go to the Roman Catholic faith and I ask the question, what is it that makes a person Roman Catholic? Or what are the identifying marks of that particular group of people, what would you say? So, sorry, if 14 of you talk all at once, I got water in the background, I won't be able to hear anything. <laughs> sorry, go ahead. Patty, you said something. The cross? Oh, yeah, like, you mean like the physical symbol that's in Catholic churches. Oh, and, and all around your neck. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I, like, I grew up a Catholic, and so if you've, if you've never been in the Catholic church, one of the things... You, that surprises people from Churches of Christ when they go in is that there are, there are icons and statues everywhere. Like, church, like the church building that I... It was just a little town in Oregon. Uh, I don't know how many people attended this Catholic church, but there were... You know, there was probably a hundred statues inside that little church building. It was amazing. Um, and, and a lot of it had to do with the cross. Right in the, the uh, center of the sanctuary was a brass cross. And anytime anyone walked in front of it, they genuflected. So it was, it was amazing, uh, really, when you think about that. All right, you said something. The Pope, sure, that's an identifying feature. Uh, uniquely to them, there is no, no other group that has a Pope the way the Roman Catholics do. There are other leaders for different denominations, but no one with the authority of the Pope. What else? Nuns, of course, yeah, the, the holy orders that they have, whether it's priesthood or the nuns, different orders of nuns or the the uh, monasteries and the, the different holy orders, the Benedictines, the Franciscans, and all kinds of things. Yes? Confession, sure. Um, you know, one of the sacraments within the Catholic Church, in fact, that's one of them also, is just the whole notion of sacraments. There are seven sacraments within the Roman Catholic heritage. Most groups have two. Virtually all Protestants have two sacraments, but within Roman Catholicism, there are seven. Okay, and confession is one of those. It's a very odd thing, actually that people go and confess to a priest and they have their sins remitted because of the priesthood's actions. All right? Anything else? The, did someone say the rosary? Yeah, the rosary, sure. Uh, I have, m numerous times I have knelt and prayed through the rosary, putting my fingers on each one of those beads where I would say 10 Hail Marys 
And then after 10 Hail Marys, then there was an Our Father. That's what we called the prayers. So Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord our... With, uh, I can't even say it now. It's been too long. But the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for our sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Okay? And you would do that 10 times. And then the 11th bead was the Lord's Prayer. And so you would say, Our Father who art in heaven, etc., etc. And then you would say 10 more Hail Marys. And I can't remember how many sets there were on the rosary, but there were a bunch of those. And you would say those. And so if you went to confession then sometimes the priest would say, as penance, I want you to go and say 20 Hail Marys and four Our Fathers. And that would be your penance or something. Okay, anything else? Well, I'll take one more. What's that? She, actually, we, we got that one covered, Gene. Okay? But you know, he's got so much authority, you could say it twice. Okay, for sure. All right. Well, let's move on. The Anglicans. There are many similarities between Roman Catholics and Anglicans, but uh, what, are some, what are some things about Anglicanism that make them distinct? Do you know? What's that? They allow divorce? Okay. I don't know if that makes them absolutely unique, but that might be the case for sure. Well, yes. Okay. I, okay. I got you now. Okay. He's going back to Henry VIII and the beginning of the, of the Anglican communion which is true. Henry VIII wanted to get divorced. So he couldn't do that in the Catholic Church, so he started his own religion. What's that? Okay, the Archbishop of Canterbury. In fact, the whole, the whole system that they have, the Episcopal system, uh, that, that phrase, Episcopal, typifies the Anglican Church perhaps more than any other group. The, the word Episcopal simply means the uh, a ruler or an overseer, and in fact, the word episcopal is actually the word episkopos is the Greek word. Uh, you know, in First Timothy chapter three, where it says, "If anyone desires the role of an overseer, they desire a noble task." That's that's the word episkopos, from which they get the structure within the Anglican Church of episcopal order. Um, you know, one of the things that sets them apart is that they look very Catholic and have a lot of Catholic structures, but they are Protestant nonetheless and are uh, affiliated specifically with a kind of um, nationality. Like in the beginning, this was the religion of the British Commonwealth and so dominated the world in a, uh, to a large degree just because of the stretches of the Roman, em- or the Roman Empire, the British Empire. Okay? Um, they have other things. The Westminster Confession of Faith is important for them. The thir- what they call the 39 Articles of Religion are really important for them. Uh, maybe the 39 Articles being more significant even than the Westminster Confession. Um, Lutherans, they have some things that are definitely distinct about them. They started the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther did, of course. Um, I've told you my story about Wittenberg, haven't I? I think I have. About a few years ago for uh, our 35th wedding anniversary, we went to, to Europe for a while, for a couple of weeks with our son. And before we left, Robin said, or maybe it was my son said, is there anything that you want to do? Because everybody else had gotten to do certain things and they were all picking things to do. And they said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to go to Wittenberg and I want to see the cathedral where Martin Luther put the 95 theses on the door and I just want to see Luther's house and all that. I just want to spend a half a day in Wittenberg. So we got up on the morning to get on the train to go to Wittenberg and there was a train strike. 
and we couldn't find a train anywhere. We had to take a 60-kilometer taxi trip over to Nuremberg so that we could get a, a, a... There were some of the main lines that were running, so we could get a train from Nuremberg to Berlin, and I never got to see Wittenberg. So I got to go back. It's another excuse to go to Europe. I need to go back and see Wittenberg. Okay. Anyway, uh, the Protestant Reformation starts with Lutheran, with Luther. He is very well known for uh, justification by faith as being a major tenet, if not the major tenet within his theology. Uh, They tend to be Augustinian, which means that they're a lot like Calvinists in terms of predestination. And so most people link uh, predestination and the whole Calvinist system just with John Calvin, but Luther tended to follow most of those things himself. Uh, They're largely German. Uh, In fact, if you go to Germany, the what they call the evangelical church in Germany is actually nothing more than the Lutheran church. Where here in North America, the term evangelical kind of stands for all believers who have some kind of conservative belief in Jesus. But in Europe, to be an evangelical specifically means to be a Lutheran. Greg, what were you going to say? Okay, sure. Um, Like Luther's shorter catechism was what he taught with and wrote and that became a kind of creedal statement within Lutheranism. They certainly do baptize infants, as do the Anglicans and the Catholics as well. Okay, the next one on the list is the Reformed or the Presbyterians. Something distinct about them that you know of. I say, I put Presbyterians in parentheses, but they're not the only group of Reformed. There are other Reformed peoples, but Presbyterians are certainly one. Yes, Jill? Is it Jill? Yes, it is. Uh, in fact, there, like if you're not aware, you probably are, that the, the heritage of Churches of Christ was, for the most part, Presbyterian. Most of the, our people in the beginning were Presbyterians. And because they were Presbyterians, they already had in their minds the notion that um, governance by a plurality of elders was the correct way to go. Now, that happens to be, I think, the biblical way. When you re- it's pretty easy to defend that biblically. Um, but in the beginning, all those Presbyterians, the Campbells and Walter Scott and all those people were pretty, kind of predisposed to that system of government as it was. Today, most Presbyterian churches will have two kinds of elders. They'll have ruling elders and teaching elders, and you can imagine what those two groups do. A lot of the, t- the teaching elders are actually their pastors and will do the preaching and teaching on Sunday morning and usually do the Lord's Supper, and then the ruling el- elders are the ones who will do the governing of the church and church discipline and those kind of things. But they're, in terms of status, they're supposed to be considered equal. Sometimes I think the teaching elders have a little bit of a, little bit of an elevated role there. Yeah. Yeah, he was from Scotland. Yes, and he's from Scotland. And in fact, the Church of Scotland is pretty much, well, it's not pretty much, it is Presbyterian. Um, John Knox actually went and trained with John Calvin for a while in on the continent, and then went back to Scotland and started the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, and it became the Church of Scotland. Um, Another thing that kind of helps them stand apart, too, is their adherence to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, There was a point at which uh, there was as much presence in the um, political houses of England by Scotland as there were by English, and that... uh, that there was a, a real mixing there of religions and politics so that uh, both the Scots 
and the Presbyterian Church that the Church of Scotland and the Church of England both uh, took portions of the Westminster Confession of Faith and it became important for them, with it being even more important for the Church of Scotland than it was for uh, the Church of England. Okay? Um, Theologically, the main thing that sets them apart is that they adhere very closely to the doctrines of John Calvin. And so Calvin wrote a major work called The Institutes of Religion back in, I think the final version was 1559, and that became the, the kind of the standard for Presbyterian doctrine and Reformed churches of all kinds. So uh, like the Dutch Reformed or the Reformed Church of Canada, Reformed Church of America, um, all of those are reformed in terms of the doctrine, very, interest, uh, very dependent upon uh, predestination and that whole scheme of the five points of Calvinism. Okay, Pentecostals, speaking in tongues, and, and really it's a, an emphasis on all the charismatic gifts. Um, it's, it's, a, it's redundant to say charismatic gifts, by the way. <laughs> it's kind of like saying all of the gift gifts, uh, but... Those uh, miraculous spiritual gifts, there's an emphasis there. An emphasis on the day of Pentecost itself as being uh, the source of their life as a church. Uh, As opposed to the Reformed church, they are Arminian, typically in theology, which means that they're very dependent upon free will. Uh, There's there's no room for predestination within um, Pentecostal churches. Um, A lot of times they will talk about a second blessing, uh, as a mark of what it means to be a Christian. Um, the United Church of Canada. Uh, I don't know if you know much about the United Church of Canada. It is the largest denomination within Canada. Um, but it's right now it doesn't have much, uh, it doesn't get a whole lot of publicity or anything. You don't hear much about it. Largely because they, theologically they've moved in such a liberal direction that they are shrinking rapidly. It's amazing uh, just how... Uh, how small some of the mainline denominations in North America are that have gone liberal in a, in a classic sense. I don't want to go into what classic liberalism is, but um, they've gone kind of classically liberal, and because of that, those churches are shrinking to a large degree. Uh, United Church of Canada started in the 19, late eight, 19-teens or early 1920s when there was an amalgamation of Methodists, Presbyterians, and Congregationalists. Uh, during what was called the ecumenical movement in North America, and that's what started the United Church of Canada. There are still some Methodists, however, in Canada and other places, of course. The Methodists started with John Wesley, and Wesley and like John Wesley and Charles Wesley both never considered themselves anything but Anglicans. They came out of England. Uh, their father was a pastor, uh, an Anglican priest, I should say, um, and never thought of themselves any differently. Uh, than just being Anglicans. But they started a a revival movement within the Methodist Church in what was called the Great Awakening. Uh, Wesley did all kinds of field preaching in England. Uh, He would go to where coal, like he'd go to a coal mine. And at the end of the day, he would preach to a crowd of 5,000 coal miners uh, before they all went home um, from work for the day. He eventually came to North America and preached a lot on the East Coast of North America and, again, started what was called the Great Awakening, now known as the First Great Awakening because there was a second one later, but at that point it was just the Great Awakening. Uh, He focused a lot on uh, on small groups, on personal holiness, 
uh, on a blessing, special second blessing of the Holy Spirit. Um, kind of ask Methodists, or sorry, he asked Anglicans, I should say, to have a much more evangelical faith than what they were having at that point. And many people would consider Wesley the, the beginning of the evangelical movement uh, in the Western world. Baptists, there's all kinds of Baptists. You can imagine the thing that sets them apart first is that they don't uh, participate in infant baptism. Uh, the only group that doesn't typically baptize infants above the Baptists on the list uh, are the Pentecostals. They, they immerse their believers, but everybody else, I think, above that all participates in infant baptism. But the Baptists, of course, don't. Uh, they arose fairly early on in the 1600s. There were a lot of the Puritans later on became Baptists, came to North America. Like if you know anything about the United States and their Thanksgiving, the Puritans coming here and all of that in the 1600s, a lot of those people were Baptists. Um, and then we come to this group at the end here, Churches of Christ. Actually, I, I, thought, I thought earlier uh, after I'd made this list and was done with my PowerPoint, I thought I should, I should have included the Christian Missionary Alliance on here. Not because numbers-wise uh, they're huge around the world, but because in Calgary and in Western Canada, they, they have quite a presence. And certainly in Canada, or sorry, in Calgary, the Christian Missionary Alliance is probably the outside of Roman Catholics in the United Church. I would think there's just about as many um, authentic church-going Christian Missionary Alliance people in Calgary as anything. Uh, certainly the, the largest evangelical churches outside of Center Street are Christian Missionary Alliance. The denomination that Center Street is associated with is actually really small uh, around the world and in Canada, but the Christian Missionary Alliance is, is quite large. And the reason why I thought I should put them on the list is because, um, of, because of what their ethos is, uh, just who they are as churches. In fact, uh, let, me, let me go to us, and then I'll come back to them, because this is fairly significant, I think, who the Christian Missionary Alliance are. So Churches of Christ, when I talk about identifying marks for us, you guys can come up with them. What are they? Baptism by immersion, and in fact, not just baptism by immersion like the Baptist, but a pretty distinct view of baptism, relating baptism specifically to, to one's salvation and the reception of forgiveness of sins, all of that coming through the act of baptism, which personally I think is fairly easy to defend biblically. Um, one of the reasons that I have... Uh, stayed with Churches of Christ, I, uh, not that I ever considered leaving, but one of the reasons that I definitely have not entertained uh, leaving is because I really, really like our position on baptism. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's very biblically defensible. Uh, maybe better, well, obviously I consider it better than any other, otherwise I'd take another one. <laughs> but I, I, I really appreciate our stance on baptism. What else is uh, different about us? Okay, we take communion every Sunday. There are lots of churches that do that. The Catholics, the Anglicans, the Lutherans, the Reformed. Um, I don't know about United Church. They don't? Okay. Uh, I think Methodists typically do. So the, there's lots of churches that do take it every Sunday. But, but it does have a bit of a unique place among us, among the free churches. And when I say free churches, I mean churches like Baptists, the, what are often termed the independents. Lots and lots of independents. Uh, non-denominational community churches don't take the Lord's Supper but once a quarter or once a month or whatever. They don't take it every, every Sunday for sure. 
What else? Yeah, for Churches of Christ historically, many of our churches have been a cappella. I put Churches of Christ Christian churches because that's really our heritage. I could have spelled it out even more than that and said Churches of Christ, Independent Christian Churches, and Disciples of Christ, which are the three main branches uh, within our within our fellowship, the heritage of Restoration Movement churches. Um, but certainly for us in this congregation, our heritage has been a cappella. As we all know, uh, we're not exactly that anymore, uh, but traditionally that's what we were, and that did identify us. What else? Yeah, the notion of restoration. Uh, the idea of restoring the first century church as best we could became a cardinal principle. Uh, in the very beginning, when Thomas Campbell wrote the Declaration and Address, there were two things that stood out. One was the unifying of all Christians together, and so we were definitely an ecumenical movement from the beginning, very, very interested in unity, bringing everyone together so we could be one unified body in Christ. And secondly, we did that on the basis of everyone coming to agreement on what the early church did. So if we can restore the early, the early church and what they did and call everyone else to that perspective, uh, then we could all be unified together on the same principles. Uh, there was a bit of a rub there because not everybody read the Bible the same and we couldn't agree very well on what exactly the early church always did. Uh, and so that put us in a difficult way, hence the three major divisions uh, within our history and then actually many more after that. There were, there's all kinds of different versions of Churches of Christ with little nuances. Um, someone counted up once there was something like 29 or whatever it was, different versions of Churches of Christ. Some of them not getting along at all with each other and some of them getting along just fine. But uh, what else? What's that? Okay, the Bible is our guideline. Yeah, again, that doesn't make us necessarily unique. In fact, uh, probably the Roman Catholics, Anglicans, Lutherans, Reformed, Pentecostals, University, United Church of Canada, Methodist, Baptists, and Christian Missionary Alliance would all say that the Bible was their foundation. However, uh, I do think that that's been more important for us to do that than any other group. And we have maybe made a virtue of that and attempted to do that with more intentionality than just about any other group. Uh, sometimes, again, finding it very hard to do, but we sure have tried. Daryl, did you have something? Yeah, local autonomy. Yeah, like there's no, there's no uh, head office. There's no denominational structure. We don't send our money anywhere besides here, uh, unless we choose to, of course, give to a, some work elsewhere. But, but no one requires that we give our money anywhere. Uh, there is no standard statement of faith that represents Churches of Christ universally. Um, uh, in terms of oversight and authority, our, ruler, our elders in our church are the ones who have the oversight and authority of our congregation without any other group having any control over us whatsoever. Okay, plurality of elders. Again, very much like Presbyterians. It's definitely not a, an Episcopal system for sure. We don't have bishops. We don't have dioceses. We don't have anything above the local congregation except for those, that plurality of elders. We tend to have a, a common name, Churches of Christ or Church of Christ, which sometimes we have said is the, is the only true biblical name. Uh, pretty hard to defend that scripturally, but we've tried. Okay. The reason I went through that exercise um, is because 
I'm not sure that hardly any of the things that we just used to identify these different groups, including ourselves, are really properly biblical ways for the church to identify itself. Yeah, go ahead, bud. I'm about to, okay? Um, But thanks, bud. Yeah, um, I'm not sure that biblically, if I was to say, what are the identifying marks of the church? I'm not sure that hardly any of the things that we talked about would be on the list if I was to do it biblically. And that's one of the things that I appreciate about the Christian Missionary Alliance. Now, I'm not saying that they have everything perfect. They certainly don't. But there's at least two things within their history that I don't think we really focused on at all, maybe a little bit with the Pentecostals. But just for example, no one, no one mentioned, and maybe it didn't even cross your mind, the things that we've talked about the last two or three weeks in terms of identifying the gospel message about the kingdom being at the core of what Jesus was teaching. Like if you read the New Testament and you ask the question, what is the focus of Jesus Christ during his ministry? There is only one word that should come to mind if you're reading your Bible very much, and that is the kingdom. Like it is, it is more clearly identifiable with the teachings of Jesus than love. Like I know love is a big one, um, but, but the kingdom is front and center the core teaching of Jesus. And one of the things that I appreciate about the Christian Missionary Alliance is that they seem to have this kind of kingdom focus that was with them from the beginning. Like this is interesting because if you ask somebody from our heritage what our focus has been in the past, if we did talk about the kingdom, we very quickly identified kingdom with what? Church. Yeah, very quickly, kingdom equaled church in our minds, and we tended to focus on the church. But biblically, I think that's a pretty difficult uh, equality to make, identification to make. To say kingdom equals church biblically doesn't really work. You can say that the church is part of the kingdom or part of the kingdom's work or something like that, but really the kingdom is far larger and grander than the church. And one of the things I appreciated uh, about the Christian Missionary Alliance is that there's a bit more emphasis on the kingdom. Second thing is they were from the beginning very focused on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I don't mean so much in the Pentecostal way. Like that's why I said a moment ago, well, except for one group. The Pentecostals certainly focused on the Holy Spirit. The Methodists did too. Um, but this is, this is something different in terms of the way the Spirit was active. It wasn't just an emphasis on external gifts. It was more an emphasis on what is the Spirit doing within the believer and then within the churches in terms of empowering the church to be what the church is. And then the third thing that I really appreciate is the notion of uh, the importance of outreach. Like when A.B. Simpson started the Christian Missionary Alliance, his main principle was, we are going to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was their goal. That's why Christian and Missionary Alliance, it was actually two groups, the Christians and the missionaries, uh, who came together and formed an alliance. But their focus from the beginning was that they wanted to be evangelistically oriented. Now, if I ask the question about churches of Christ, was evangelism 
one of our, was it our centerpiece in terms of who we are? I think the answer is definitely no. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean we weren't interested in evangelism. Somebody converted all you people. Somebody converted me. There definitely was evangelism that went on, and I praise the Lord that there was evangelism, but that wasn't the centerpiece for us. Our centerpieces were unity and restoration, and for the Churches of Christ a cappella, that very quickly became just restoration, as opposed to even the unity piece being crucial for us. So um, my point is, is that I think we could have actually started at a stronger place, and I wish that we had. And again, does the Christian Missionary Alliance have it all perfect? <laughs> Certainly not. Melissa over here is married to, a, uh, to Alan, who is a pretty significant person within Christian Missionary Alliance churches, certainly here in town uh, and in Western Canada as far as the CMA goes. And if you were to ask Alan, I'm sure he would say, are you kidding? You know, we've got tons of problems. And, you know, so they're not, they're not perfect at all, that's for sure. But they did start out at a place that I think was was pretty positive. Now, what I want to do here in the next few minutes is just quickly go through some scriptures, have us look at these, and, and, and frame for us what I think is perhaps a better direction. Uh, we, uh, this is our last class this morning for the summer. Uh, next week is going to be the, uh, the children's uh, showcase Sunday, so we won't be having class after this. I've wanted for the last few weeks to just focus on our mission and the notion of missionality, and I think I think we're going to get there very quickly here. Now, first of all, if I was to ask, what are some biblical passages that I could point to that really do ground our faith? Uh, and one of these, I would say, is Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, if you want to turn there. One of the things that we've done in Churches of Christ when we've asked the question about the identifying, uh, identifying marks of the church is that we have freely focused on doctrine, and I do think that there should be a doctrinal component to what it means to be the church. But I would think there's maybe a, a better biblical kind of place to go intend, instead of uh, what we've sometimes done in proof texting and pulling pieces from different parts and kind of um, building a doctrinal center out of a, from a whole bunch of different places rather than just asking the question, does the New Testament ever point to a place where there's a doctrinal center? And I think Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 might be as good as we've got on this. Somebody want to read this out loud, please? Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Read it in a loud voice. Okay, so there's a, there's a certain kind of character that goes along with being Christian. Go ahead. Okay, we've got unity there. So we were a bit on track in terms of saying that, that unity, the ecumenical side of us, uh, is something that we needed to focus on. Unfortunately, we probably didn't see the role that the Holy Spirit needs to have in that. And this specifically says that it's the Spirit's unity that we simply maintain. We don't try and create unity in the church. The Spirit gives us unity. We just need to maintain it. Go ahead. Okay, now I think those verses might, as I said, constitute as good as doctrinal foundation as what we might find in the Bible, asking the question, what is the center of our theology supposed to be? And this is a pretty good place. I'm not sure that it's 
absolutely complete, uh, but it's not a bad one for sure, okay? Now, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2, if you would. I want to go back one there, Trev, but I can't, but I won't do it. Okay. Maybe I accidentally made them one point. Anyway, Acts chapter 2. We won't read all of this, but if you look at the first few verses, after the buildup of Acts chapter 1 that we're going to get to in just a moment, then Acts chapter 2 all of a sudden comes on the church as a far more significant event than what we've given it credit for. When we talk about Acts chapter 2, we want to go to Acts 2.38. We want to get to the end of the sermon. Tell us what to do, Peter. What can we do to fix this? Okay? And we do eventually get there. But that means that we ignore the first half of this book, or the first half of this chapter, which talks, of course, about the coming of the Spirit on the church and the day of Pentecost, which the Pentecostals are right in saying this is a huge event in the life of the church, far larger than what we ever give it credit for. And so we don't have time to spend uh, right now this morning on any of this, but if you just want to see what is the role of the Spirit in the church, uh, Acts 2 starts at the right place in terms of this major event where the Spirit comes on the apostles and they start preaching in response to the presence of the Spirit. It's, it's huge. And then uh, we don't even need to turn there, but 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 12 is all about the gifts, and we don't like to even hardly talk about the gifts because that'll, that could potentially take us down the Pentecostal road or something, and we, so we like to kind of ignore that. But again, it is huge in terms of the role that the gifts are supposed to play within the church and the, the role that the Spirit has in, in, um, uh, in bringing the, uh, the, like the life of the church about, like the mission and life of the church and the influence that the Spirit is supposed to be there is just, it's incalculable, it's so big, and we don't talk much about it. That's one of the things that I love, again, about the Christian Missionary Alliance. When they were thinking about the church and what it is, when A.B. Simpson was formulating all that, and and I might tell you there's a huge debate about, in their history, about whether he was charismatic or not. I'm convinced that he wasn't, but, um, you know, the question is, does does the, the Spirit empower the life and the ministry of the church? And 1 Corinthians 12 show this in a way that that we just don't take account of. And of course, all of that is balanced by 1 Corinthians 13, which we know is the love chapter, where love is lifted up as this major focus also for what Christianity is supposed to be. So if I was to think about grounding passages for what the church is, 1 Corinthians 12, with the gifts of the Spirit and the influence of the Spirit, and Acts chapter 2 and the Spirit's role, balanced by this notion of love in 1 Corinthians 13, those things combined, I think, form a really good foundation for what the church is supposed to be. Okay, then 1 Corinthians 15. You can turn there if you want. We've got time to do this one. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And maybe somebody can read for us really loud, verses 1 through 8, and then verse 11. Okay, so Paul himself says, this is of first importance. These are things that are priorities. And it just makes sense to me, if we're going to make something a priority, that we would ask Paul, what would you make a priority? And then he's going to tell us. Go ahead, Andy. Okay, so Paul says, here's our message. This is what we preach. This is the gospel. And he, and he does a, a summary here of what gospel is and the elements that go in there and the kind of 
faith that call, is called for uh, out of that gospel presentation. And, and he says, he's the one who says, these things are of first importance. Now, if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, which we won't do right now, this is that very famous passage uh, where Paul talks about how we were all dead in our transgressions and sins in which we used to walk. And then he goes on and talks about eventually how we're all saved by grace through faith. And he ends in verse 10 by saying God has given us good works to do in response to what he's done in Jesus through all the grace and faith. And this is a summation of the gospel as well. Chapter uh, 2 of Ephesians 1 through 10. It's definitely a place where Paul is summing up the heart of the message of Jesus and what Jesus has done. Okay, and then I want to, this is the one where I really want to go to this morning. We've done this already this morning. Go ahead. Is there more there? Okay, well, I made a mistake maybe. Although it printed out. It's got to be there somewhere because it printed out. But anyway, turn to Acts chapter 1. And we have read this passage lots in the last couple of years. I don't know if you'll remember me reading it lots, but I guarantee you I have read it lots in the last couple of years because this has become one of my favorite sections of Scripture. Romans chapter 8, John 17. You know, there's just some passages that for each one of us just are the ones that we love most. And this one has been a place where I have just loved to dwell. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit. And, I, and that's an intentional kind of stopping place for me, through the Holy Spirit, to the apostles he had chosen. And the reason I stop there is because it just gets so much press here at the beginning of the book of Acts. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and lo and behold, he spoke about the kingdom of God. What a shock. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the, son, for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Here's one of the things that's interesting to me. In churches of Christ, we have emphasized so much water baptism, which is a good thing, very biblical to do so. But here, there is an intentional move made by Jesus himself to draw attention not to water baptism, but to baptism by the Holy Spirit. And the reason he does that, and he says in other places, you know, John's baptism was about repentance and forgiveness, and, and it, was, it had that purpose. But I have come to do something different. And what's interesting is that when we talk about baptism, we talk about water baptism for repentance and forgiveness, which again is good, but it's, it's less than half the story because Jesus says, but I came to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's his purpose. It makes sense to me that it, that's his purpose. That has to be our purpose. If that's his emphasis, it makes sense to me it would be our emphasis. Now, for those of you who are thinking to yourselves, is, is he going to become charismatic Pentecostal? Is he going to speak, speak in tongues soon? Not in the le Lord, unless the Lord does it. I'm not expecting that. It's never happened. I don't think that Jesus is going to change that in my life right away. It could happen, but I'm not really anticipating it. But I do see an emphasis here by the Lord Jesus 
in this direction. Then it says, so when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They've got the message about the kingdom. They may not understand it, but they know that the kingdom is crucial for Jesus. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. So don't worry about when the kingdom's coming. In fact, he would say, it's already here. We're already active in it. And then verse 8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that line is as crucial to the church as any line in the New Testament. That is the focus of Jesus Christ. He's got a few things to tell the apostles before he goes. I don't think Jesus is going to waste his time telling them things that are not important. Instead, he tells them something that is right at the center of things for them, or should be. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So there's something about the Spirit coming on the church which is incredibly powerful. And again, I'm not talking here just about charismatic gifts. Certainly Jesus wasn't um, limiting the power of the Spirit to that. This has more to do with the whole movement of the Spirit in the church to do something dramatic and powerful as part of the kingdom work. And then he says, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so the plea for us to be witnesses is right at the heart and the core of what Jesus is asking of the church. And so there's there's more than this in Acts chapter 1, but there's at least these two major pillars the power of the Spirit that grants to the church the ability to be witnesses for the kingdom in the world. And that should be the identifying marks of the church more than anything else. Like when it comes to asking who are we to be as a church, that's it. And some of the other things that we saw in all those other groups, including ourselves that were listed before, are not that. And that's one of the things that I appreciate so much about the Christian Missionary Alliance and some other groups. When they founded, when they started, that's where they were. And I want to say, good on them. Good choice. That was the right move. And it put them in a place where they could do things from the very beginning, and create for themselves an ethos, a style, a heritage, which is different than our own. And I appreciate very much who we are, but we don't have as legitimate ethos, an identifying character for ourselves. Ours is not as legitimate in terms of our history as that. And we need to go there. To make that our center is to be absolutely biblically centered where some things maybe are not quite at the center. Michael? Not right now. It falls right in line, like that statement would be my witnesses to the end of Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Right, right. Samaria. The Holy Spirit's there. Yes, absolutely. When the gospel is moving beyond the Jews to the rest of the world. Sure. It's the Spirit. The Holy does it. The Holy Spirit does it, yeah. And so again, like it's not just in Acts 1. You know, I, like I can't dismiss what you're saying because it's all over Acts. That's right. I totally agree. You find Paul at the very end still talking about the kingdom. Yeah. You know, so like to me it's, it's fascinating. Okay, it? I, like I've said before, when we looked at the book of Acts a long time ago, at one point I said to you, I said, you know, the, the, the book is misnamed. 
Like, it's not an inspired name, Acts of the Apostles. That's not in some manuscript somewhere, you know, where it's, that's a holy name. It's misnamed. It shouldn't be the Acts of the Apostles. It should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because that's really what moves and drives the church and its ministry. And if it's anything else that moves and drives the ministry of the church, it's a mistake. And, and by not starting there from the very beginning, we created for ourselves an ethos that probably isn't quite bang on biblically. And I think it's hampered us ever since. So when we talk about restoring and recovering something, that's what I'd like to restore more than anything else. If we recover that, we'll be in much better shape. Okay, we've gone way over. Uh, you'll have to just sit there. You can't get up. No going to the washroom. No going to get coffee. <laughs> okay, thanks everybody.